We're starting a brand new series. This is today's introduction, and it's called Lead. And you might not see yourself as a leader. Let me tell you something about that, because I can actually speak into this. Because I didn't consider myself a, a leader, because it doesn't come naturally to me. I am a self-taught leader. I'm not a natural-born leader. Maybe that's many of you. I have learned how to put myself into uncomfortable situations so that I can, so that I can lead. I remember even when I was a boy, um, there was some leadership uh, classes or clubs at the high school. And my parents encouraged me to be involved in that. And I don't know if I verbalized it, but I know I at least said it. It's like, I can't go to that club because I'm not a leader. And we do this to this day. I, I can't, you know, I can't open up my home to a Bible study because I am not a leader. I don't know enough. Or I, I can't teach Sunday school because I'm not a leader. Now, that is, my friends, a lie from the pit of hell. If you are a Christian, by de facto, you are a leader. And you might be thinking to yourself, who am I leading? There's nobody around me. There's nobody following me. I'm not leading anybody. If you are a parent, you're leading your home. If you are in the work environment and you're not even the boss, you are leading by example in that environment. If you are a student, just a regular old student, you are a leader by, the, by how you conduct yourself, how you interact with your friends, how you interact with your teachers. Everybody's a leader. You, there is no way out. And maybe you still have some excuses on this. Well, there's at least, I guarantee you, there is at least one person that you are leading today, and that is yourself. We need to, lead, we need to learn how to lead ourselves. And so everybody's going to get something out of this series. And the reason why we decided to head in this direction, that we, we were, our pastoral staff was working on this issue of leadership and what does it mean to not just be a leader, but a biblically-based leader in the context of gospel-centered ministry. Because there are corporate leaders... I just made a huge discovery. Let's turn that phone off. All right, thank you. There's corporate leaders. There's sports leaders. There's social media influencers. And from the outside, it looks as if those platforms are successful from, the worldly, from a worldly perspective. But leadership inside of a gospel community is almost completely upside down. And it looks different and feels different than what the world has to offer. And so we're going to be looking at what does it mean to be a gospel leader. Okay, so why, why lead? Why even, even, why even go there? And well, one, First of all, it's a spiritual gift. So there's a spiritual gift of leadership. And even though you, again, maybe you're like me, you're just not a natural leader, you can obtain this spiritual gift of leadership. Isn't that cool? Like all the gifts of the Spirit, are like they're all for the getting. You can get each one. Like some of them come naturally. Some of them are just, again, they're, they're gifted. But the, the Scriptures say that we are to pray for the spiritual gifts and earnestly seek them, especially the gift of prophecy. I don't have time to get into that one, but it's just it's fascinating. So I, my intention, the staff's intention into focusing on this is that we want Granite Creek to be a healthy church. What do you think? Like, we're, we do pretty good. Like, it, when we were spending time reflecting and, like, t- you know, thinking hard about how we lead and do we lead well and where are our weak spots and what are our strengths, like, when we're thinking and, and processing through this I, I love Granite Creek. I love you all. You all seem to project a level of spiritual, spiritual maturity and health that I, that I don't necessarily see in other churches. So I'm very proud, proud in a good way, 
to be the pastor of this church because I think we're pretty healthy. But we can always be healthier. If you've been around us for a long time, you know that we believe that all the gifts are for today. We believe that the kingdom of God is here and it is now and it is future. We believe that everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to to push on into the kingdom of God. All the things that Jesus did. Healing of the sick, raising of the dead, cleansing of lepers, signs and wonders. Like, like these are... These expressions are are for us today. They're called the charismatic gifts or the the charismata, right? The charismatic expression of the gospel message. This is one of the the values and hallmarks of our church. Uh, Some other churches don't have these values of the charismatic gifts or believing that God still works through signs and wonders today. And and, and that's just, but we don't, like, we're like, well, if Jesus said it, we're going to go for it. So, I am, and this might, this word might come off sounding weird, specifically if you've ever been exposed to um, TV evangelists that are kind of off-center, and the media has, um, they, they've, they've made charismatic a negative word, but I'm here to tell you that charismatic is a positive word, and we just, we're just going to reclaim it. So I'm a, I'm a charismatic pastor, meaning I believe in all of the gifts. Now, the, what we need to be mindful of, if we have charisma or the charismata, listen, we have charisma, if we were, we're functioning in the flow and the power of the Holy Spirit, if we're allowing the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us, if we allow Jesus to have his way with us as a congregation, if we have charismata without character, then you get a little crazy. Does that make sense? If you have charisma without character, you get crazy. I've been around crazy churches that have no character, they have no balance, they have no self-control, like the congregate doesn't know the difference between an emotional high and a move of the Holy Spirit. I want us to know when we're in the midst of a move of the Holy Spirit and not just worked up by a worship band and a fast-talking preacher. Does that make sense? We want to know when we're in the presence of God. We want to know when it's real and not when we've been manipulated when our emotions have been played with. You know, it's, it's easy. It's easy to play with people's emotions. And as leaders inside of this church, I promise you, we'll never take advantage of your emotions. We'll encourage you to be drawn into the presence of the Holy Spirit. So that is why we're doing it. I believe that the more we work on our character, the more God can trust us with power. The more the Holy Spirit can grow on a vine and truly transform our homes and our communities. That's what I believe. So that's one reason why we're focusing on character right now, on how to lead and how to lead well from a biblical perspective. Another reason why is that the church needs to be dependent upon the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The church needs to be, like, we need to be, like, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that is our dependency. Even the word gospel is so precious to me. At times in my spiritual walk, I would be like, Ah, the gospel message, I know it. I've been there. I've done that. Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins so that I could spend eternity with me. I got it. I got it in junior high. Now, the problem with that is that there is a, a, there's a complacent attitude to the saving grace of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We can never get too familiar with the power of the cross. 
We always need to be fascinated about the gospel message and the transformation that takes place when we live a gospel-centered life. The whole perspective is all around this cross. Our whole lens on seeing how we live life and how we do church is all around this cross. The gospel is why we are here, the good news. Last month, I I went to a pastor's conference. It was great. It was life-giving. It was encouraging to me as a pastor. It built me up in ways that I haven't built up, haven't been built up in a long time. I went by myself. I didn't know anybody there. But I felt the encouragement for the people that put this on. And it was done with no strings attached. There was no sales gimmick. There was no pitch at the end. They were just there to serve and to, get, and to encourage and to give information. It had a political bent to it, which is just kind of giving us information on what's coming down the pike, what, as pastors, what we need to be aware of. And this organization, this ministry served us so well. We did not eat Chick-fil-A. We ate steak. They breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It was it was very it was very well done, and the whole thing was free. And again, there was no gimmicky sales pitches. Despite and the the, the the pastors that were pastoring me in this moment, it was again it was encouraging and it was uplifting. Now, even the best of pastors say things that they should not say. Can I get an amen? amen? Has Pastor Josh ever said something that he should not have said? Oh yes. Okay, now we're on. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. So, the best of pastors say things that they shouldn't say, and usually they mean something or they have a point to make. And and pastors are prone to hyperbole, right? They're prone to a little exaggeration here or there to make a point or to drive something home or to get a cheap laugh. This pastor, whom I I highly respect, and he won me over, he said something that I didn't like, that I didn't agree with. He said, okay, ready? He said that the gospel isn't good enough. All right? Okay, that statement in and of itself is a false statement, right? That the the, the gospel isn't good enough? Like, Like, that just, like, rubbed me the wrong way. And, like, I just, I almost wanted to jump out of my seat and scream, but I didn't because it wasn't my place to do so. But I understood, and I gave, I gave the situation grace because I understand what he was trying to communicate, and he did highlight what he was trying to communicate. He says, the gospel isn't good enough, and okay, and then he goes into faith without works is dead, all right? So that's the point he's trying to make. He's saying, if, you, if, if your churches are preaching the gospel message, but there is no action behind it, then it's this then it's, it's a worthless religion, right? If you're not taking care of widows and orphans, then it's not, a, then it's not pure and undefiled religion. So that's what he was trying to say. And, and he did say it, but he, just, he had that, that phrase that he could have phrased it a different way. Does that make sense? You don't, you don't say that. You don't say that the gospel isn't good enough. Today's message is the gospel is good enough. It is the lens that we see everything through. I'm assuming, again, it wasn't my, play, <laughs> my place to correct this individual. I'm sure that he has people around him that said, you know, dude, maybe you should have said it a different way. So I'm assuming that, that there was some, some gentle feedback, right? For example, last week, I said at least three things that I shouldn't have said, <laughs> Right? I said at least three things that I should not have said last week. I said one bad word. I, I promoted one conspiracy theory. And I made one inappropriate political suggestion. All I should not have said any of them. Again, I was in the moment. like it popped into my head. Came out of my mouth. Lack of self-control. Shouldn't have said it. Do you know what's beautiful about our community? Is that I got healthy feedback. You know, Pastor Josh could have said that a different way. You know, wash your mouth out with soap, Pastor Josh, right? So, this is what I'm talking about. 
Now, I'm, and this is why we have a healthy community, because we receive, we receive healthy feedback. And if I receive healthy feedback, you need to receive healthy feedback too. This is why we're doing this. We need to have healthy, gospel-centered, because the gospel is good enough, healthy, gospel-centered communities that direct us to have healthy communication, how to lead well and how to lead ourselves well. That, my friends, is why we are doing it. Now, what is a gospel community? I mean, you're, you're sitting in one right now. Like, we're, we're literally doing, we're doing church right now. The gospel community, the, the church of Jesus Christ, she, we refer to it as a she because this is the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ needs to be 100% completely dependent upon the bridegroom. Okay? We need to be dependent 100% upon Jesus. This is his church. And so this is how I want to lead. We're, we're, we're dependent upon Jesus. When you live your lives, you need to be 100% completely dependent upon Jesus and this, this good news. One of the reasons, another reason why I'm doing this series on, on gospel leadership is because in the American church, we've gone askew. I don't want to get too finger-pointy and self-righteous about this, but there's certain things. Uh, I've been to other church conferences that have taught me unbiblical stuff. I've been to church growth movement conferences. Church growth movement stuff was huge, and I think we're probably reacting to it. We're probably adjusting to it. But the church growth movement concept, they took, biblical, they took business principles, and they overlaid it upon the context of church. Some of them apply. Some of them work. Some of them don't, and some of them are completely unbiblical. For example, uh, all right, I'm not going to say church names. But there was a huge, giant megachurch, one of the first giant megachurches in the state, the states that, w- that had a huge impact that, that we actually learned from, that we gleaned from. Uh, Harvard, they were so successful in growing a congre- congregation that Harvard did a case study on it. Harvard was blown away about how they led and how they were so successful. They did a case study on it. So you can go to Harvard Business Review. You can look up the case study. Well, I'm not saying names, but you can probably figure it out. And the reason why the case study was done is because they hired an MBA guy to run the church. And he just took marketplace uh, principles and he applied it on the church. Again, some of them are good. Some of them them are unbiblical. One of the unbiblical ones was, is that they said, okay, everybody has to have, your your church needs to have a target audience. The target audience. Guess who the target audience, guess who he was? that's That's a clue right there. The target audience was a man. Not only a man but a man from his 30s to his 50s, 50s, 60s. And this is, in the, this is in the report. A white man who drives a BMW. I'm not making this up. And back in the day, not only would he have a cell phone, but he'd also have a pager. And they even gave his, they even gave his economic demographic, and he needs to make this much, and he needs to work in these fields. And so this church zeroed in on a target audience of this one particular person, and they even made a graphic of it for their leadership with, with, who, with their church on who to focus on. This is who you focus on. You get this guy, you get everybody else. Does that make sense? That model got replicated all over the nation. There's another church that said, This is your target audience. He is from South Orange County, and this is exactly who he is. And they would print off life-size target audience models. Like, this is who we're reaching. Okay, so first off, why is that not biblical? 
It's so not biblical. It's so wrong. Because what did the early church model to us? The early church modeled to us that the congregation, the church, has no specific targets. When the Holy Spirit poured out upon uh, the believers, those that were praying in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, those believers were of every nation. Yes, they were Jewish, but they were also ethnically mixed with other things. There were people from Arabia. There were people from Europe. There were people from Asia. They were all Jews. They all spoke different languages. Uh, there were rich ones. There were poor ones. There was all over the spectrum of who they were, and that was the original church. And so, um, guess what our target, target audience is? Uh, humanity. That's our target audience, humanity. So that's one area where it was wrong. Another model that, that you'll, it'll make sense when I highlight that. So everybody agrees that that's a wrong model, right? No target audience in, in the gospel. The good news is for everybody. This one might rub you a little, this one might be a little hard to swallow. The other model that was taught to me at church growth seminars was that when, you, um, when you're teaching on giving, you teach give to vision. No, not hallelujah. That's not biblical. Yeah. So, you want to grow your church? You guys are struggling financially? The, the offering plate is a little low? You need to vision them up. You need to teach to vision. Give to vision. Now, there is truth to that, right? Because without vision, the people perish, right? If there is no vision, the people will perish. Let's read that scripture. Let's see if I have it. Yeah, here it is. Uh, Proverbs 29. We know this. Proverbs 29, 18. Okay. Where there is no vision, the people will perish, all right? And usually we just stop right there. There's a problem when we stop scriptures where we want them to stop. I want to encourage you to keep on reading, because then it goes on to say, but he that keepeth the law, he is happy, all right? So what's the part two? You have to keep the law. If you want to, you know, without, without a vision, people fail, but the other part is you've got to keep the law. And in this, in this context, what's the law? We need to be faithful to our giving. Now, I love vision. I have a vision for the church. I have a vision for that venue. I can see things in my mind before they happen. It is such a blessing to have vision uh, birthed and manifest. I love it. But giving to vision is not obedience. It feels good. I like to give to vision. I like to give to projects. I like to give to things that, that have been framed out in a way like, yeah, I can get behind that. Let's do that thing. And that's what we've done here. We've, we've given to vision. But, I need that, but that's not a biblical principle. That's a vision principle that the marketplace has taught us. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Do you know why Samuel told David that? It's because David found himself in compromised situations. He was morally flawed. He'd made some major mistakes. He wanted to get right with God. He knew he needed to sacrifice. And back in the day, when you sacrificed, everybody saw and he's going to make a big deal about it. Yeah, I blew it. I better sacrifice. I better give. And Samuel calls him out on the carpet with feedback. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So in the context of a biblical gospel community, I can't teach that vision is the way that we fund this church. Obedience is the way that we fund this church. I'll tell you why. Because we've built a beautiful venue down here. Uh, it's going to, our, our, our hope, and I believe it's going to happen, it's going to generate, again, another income source for our church. It's going to make a way that 
you know, where we can give our staff bonuses and a raise. They've had one raise in 15 years. And that was six years ago. This is why we're doing this. We believe that, that God prompted us to use the resources, and these resources came in with special designated gifts. And this is why it's happened. And we've been praying about it for a long time. And, you know, now that it's almost done, our next job is, okay, now we've got to get the word out. Now we have to market it. Now we have to, you know, set up a business plan. I'm, I'm meeting this week to set up a business plan for how we're going to run the venue, right? So I'm, 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 I'm in business mode right now. I'm in get-it-done mode right now. Now, do you know how easy it would be for me, and this has taken a lot of time, but you know how easy it would be for me to prioritize this venue over the church? I'll tell you, super easy. Super easy. Like, there's potential for this side wedding venue business. I've looked at the numbers. Potentially, it has the possibility of generating more income than our tithes and our offerings. So where would you think I would naturally put my energy and time and effort? I'm going to put it into the thing that's making money, right? But is that gospel? It's not gospel, is it? And so us as leadership, we're going to be very mindful that like this is going, this is going to help the church. This is going to help our mission. This is going to help us feed orphans. We're going to be able to give more to kid care. Like there's amazing things that we're going to be able to do because of this, because God led us into this area to, to generate something that can help support this building. Do you know that our electric bill is like $4,000? Yeah, I know. <laughs> you thought your electric bill was high. And then we were like strict about it. What I don't want us to ever see happen is to, that we're so dependent upon our natural abilities in the context of business to provide, right? Maybe you've seen this over the years in other churches, churches that have awesome preschools. Their preschools are packed out, right? Or maybe they have, um, maybe they have a, uh, a Christian school. Their Christian school is thriving and successful, or maybe they have an awesome bookstore, like they're cranking out books all the time. It's successful. But you go into their congregation, and there's no life there. There's no passion there. There's no gospel there. Why? It's because we've relied upon the things of this world and not trusting entirely on what Jesus can provide. Jesus is our provider. You see where I'm going with this? And I want to encourage you to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Hosea 6, 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Interesting, huh? My, uh, let's see. Jesus even references this too. In Matthew, he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So Jesus, in an essence, he kind of rewrites what Samuel said. I, Jesus has the right to rewrite it. What is Jesus doing? He's putting this truth into a gospel context. He's saying, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. All right. Now, in forming and building and growing together as a faith community, what does it mean to be gospelly led? I want to let's get your Bibles out if you brought them. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. This is Paul's description of a healthy, growing community. What we need to do that is outside of the business world. 
Paul says, chapter 4, verse 1, as a prisoner of the Lord. So Paul is a, a prisoner. He's a slave. He's completely subject to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an amazing start. And then he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. We have done this very well. We, we are, I can see it. I can feel it. That you are living a life worthy of your calling. Can we get better? Absolutely. We're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to get better. Right? Ready for this? Be completely humble. How are you doing on your humility? Yeah. Humility is not fun. We'll get to that in a second. Be completely humble and gentle. How's your gentleness these days? All right, ready for the next one? Be patient. Patience is not an American virtue, by the way, at least a Southern California one. Being patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, unity, making sure that we're going after this bond of peace, making, making sure that we are peacemakers. And so from this passage, I have six points. You can write these down if you'd like. So gospel-centered communities. First of all, the number one is, not the number one, but one of them is humility. Humility. What does humility mean from a biblical perspective? Well, let me tell you, because I've got it all figured out. And I am so incredibly humble. I am more humble than everybody else. And you ought to be amazed at how well I am doing this. Humility is, it is a decision. It is a spiritual discipline. I have to, I have to choose humility. And the thing about choosing humility is you can't just tell everybody how humble you are, right? You have to choose humility. And humility is so hard for most of us to do because we're naturally selfish, self-centered types of people. Humility is extremely difficult for people that live in a black and white world where, you know, it's this way or the highway. This is right. This is wrong. People that have very little gray area in their life, they have a hard time being humble. Why is that? It's because they know all the answers. Because they know what's right, they know what's wrong. And they are not open to other perspectives or other ideas. I used to be locked into a specific theological, dogmatic rule of life. Like, I thought I had everything figured out. Like, I am the true believer. My way is the only way. Uh, all those other denominations specifically the Baptists, all those, other, <laughs> all those other denominations, they've got it wrong. I've got all the right answers. Everybody else is living their faith the wrong way, but our way is the right way. And over the years, the Lord has worked on me, and, and, and he's, he's brought other denominations into my life, other expressions into my life, and things that I was so strict on, so dogmatic about, all I needed to do was just to humble myself and to listen to my brother in Christ that had a different interpretation or a different perspective. Now, one of my closest pastor friends is a Baptist. Interesting, isn't it? And it turns out that we have much more in common than we ever had in different. And so the humble person, the, the person that submits to the Lord in humility, you ready for this? They are willing to be lifelong learners. They're, they're willing and able to say, okay, I have this perspective, but I'm willing to listen to you. Are, are you willing to listen to other people's positions and objections? And are you willing to even let people into your own life? They can give you opinions about yourself and how you're acting. Look, humility is not fun. Why? It's because it humbles us. It humbles us and, well, 
you're not humble before the Lord, no matter how many degrees you have in theology, no matter how much you figured it out, you've got all the right answers. If you're not humble before the Lord, the Lord can't use you. He can't activate you. Humility acknowledges that we're fallen. Despite how well of a leader you may or may not be, sin is still a part of our game until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to manage it. We have to know that it's there. We have to know that we're susceptible to sin. We need to always constantly change our mindset that like, okay, um, this was my old self. I need to reattach myself to my new self in Christ Jesus. I need to align myself to my identity in Him and not my identity into my own, my own truth. That's one of the things that they like to say. You, know, you need to live your own truth. Have you heard this? Living your own truth? Is that a humble statement? Where does living your own truth get you? Absolutely nowhere. It can get you somewhere, but you might not want to go there. Humble people are motivated to serve. Did you know that? That humble people are motivated to serve rather than to be seen. Think about that for a second. Are you motivated to serve so that you'll be seen? Or are you motivated to serve and you don't really care if you're seen or not? Humble people. Humble people are committed to personal change. There is no plateauing off. There is no uh, accomplishing the end goal with your personal development and your personal character growth in Jesus Christ. Humble people are committed to growing and committed to change. No matter how old you are, no matter what stage of life you are in, you have to be committed to change. Number two is that a gospel-centered community is dependent on Christ. Dependency. Are you dependent? Like, this is tough. Again, it goes against our American ethos, most of us, this independent attitude, right? And, and I love it. I love my independence. I love the fact that I can, in this beautiful country, I can become my own person. I can, I can live in the context of, of freedom, and I can do whatever I want and however I want to do it. I can live my life however I want, for the most part, right? It's an, it's an amazing thing that we have this freedom. But at the same time, the gospel-centered community lives in a constant state of dependence, meaning that we are 100% dependent upon the Lord. Can you say that about yourself? For some of us that are maybe high-driving, business-minded, get-her-done, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps, the temptation that we have, and I'm speaking personally about my own self, is that I can do it myself, God. Thank you very much. I can make my own money, Lord. I can, I can, make, I can make things happen within my own power and my own will. I don't need you. Have you ever thought those thoughts? Is that just me? No. See, the gospel-centered mind that's dependent upon Christ knows that all good things come from the Lord. All good things come from the Lord. Yeah, you worked hard. Yeah, you got your education. Yeah, you've been, you've been disciplined in your lifestyle. And it seems as if you earned these things. But all good things come from the Lord. You have just demonstrated that God can trust you with it. Does that make sense? The same applies to our salvation. Like, I, I used to think, man, if I am such a good boy. There's my humility coming out again. I am such a good boy. I am such a moral person. I thought this in high school. Like, because I was, a good, I was a good kid in high school. You can ask me about college later. But I, Christian college, by the way. Uh, but in the secular environment, I was such a good boy. I didn't party. I didn't do bad things. I told the line, I went to youth group. I convinced myself 
that my good deeds got me right with God and not the gospel. And therefore, I thought that God owed me because I was good. Uh, God doesn't owe you anything. (laughs) We owe Him everything. We owe Him everything for what He's done for us at the cross. So, dependency. How dependent are you upon God? Ready for this one? How dependent are you upon the body of Christ? How dependent are you upon others? Do you have other people that can speak feedback into your life like I do? Are you willing to open yourself and be dependent upon others? Not only does that require humility, it requires a level of vulnerability that says, okay, I am going to be dependent upon others to speak truth into my life. That's a difficult thing to do. I totally get it. I totally understand it. So dependency is, is walking with God in a community, a community experience. Dependency means that you can have the added you can't you can have the attitude that you know yourself better than anyone else. All right, um, I live inside of my own head, right? I was an only child. I have a, I have an active imagination. I don't have any problems being alone by myself in the woods for hours. I actually prefer it. I mean, I bring my dog, but I think. I know myself better than anyone else. Doesn't anybody else think this because you live inside of your head too? Do you know that that too is a fallacy, that that's a lie from the devil? And you're not going to know what's wrong with you unless you're in a gospel-centered community where people that you love and people that you love can speak the truth and love to you, can say, oh, I, I know you very well, Pastor Josh, I know you very well. And I know you're not okay right now. Do you have people in your life that can do that? Sometimes we think that we know ourselves, but the people around us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can know us better than we know ourselves. That's the power about being attached to the body of Christ. What do you think about that one? It's annoying sometimes. You know, Mako knows me better than I know my own self. Like, she knows what I'm going to do before I do it. It's annoying. But I have to submit to that. So being dependent upon the Lord and being dependent upon each other. Every leader, like, again, you are all leaders. I just determined that you're a leader because you're leading yourself. But every leader needs to be led. Every pastor needs to be pastored. The truth is, the body of Christ, when she is healthy, the bride of Christ, rescues us from ourselves. Sometimes we just need to be saved from our own selves. And we can only do that if we're in the gospel community. Number three, um, we need to be prepared. Prepared. Trained, if you will. To be, like, in the moment, like, you know what you're going to do. Prepared to be spontaneous. In the gospel community, you need to be prepared to expect the worst and prepared to accept the best. I am prepared, at least I'm working on it, I am prepared for when the Holy Spirit shows up. Like, I'm willing the Holy Spirit shows up. A lot of us abandon this, this outline here. I'll just go with it. I need to be spontaneous in the moment when God shows up, right? Like when blessing is pouring out, you, when, bless, when God's moving, when there, when there is an outpouring of His Holy Spirit, when there's blessing that, that you just can't, you can't fathom, like that is not the place to be locked in. That's the, that's the time for you to be spontaneous and to go with the flow. When God's moving, you need to be moving too. The other side of the coin is you need to be prepared for the best, but you also need to be prepared for the worst. Are you prepared when somebody in your gospel community, 
Or maybe somebody in your own family. Maybe somebody that you are closest to. They lose that battle with their flesh. Are you prepared if your child blows it morally? Have you even thought about it yet? Or would it catch you off guard? Off guard? Let's just say your child's like, you know, your child's 12 years old. I'm going to go run away and I'm going to go shack up with Bobby. Are you, have, you, have you thought that scenario through? Have you, you know, if somebody that you know that you're close to and you share everything, you know, you share your lives together and then they come and they confess to you that they have a heroin addiction. Are you prepared for that type of news and that type of information? Have you thought it through? Because if you haven't, well, first of all, we need to know that, yes, we are saved by grace. We are saints in God's eyes. But there is, there is a, if we don't manage our grace, the grace that's been given us, like everybody falls, everybody slips. Have you ever had somebody that you looked up to? Um, one of my, one of my, uh, one of the people that I looked up to growing up. This is kind of a weird one for a young man, but I used to love Jimmy Swaggart. Like it didn't fit my culture, it didn't fit my age bracket, but I would watch Jimmy Swaggart all, all the time, and I would just soak it in. Like I loved what he had to say. I loved his business, his his ministry model. And then when he got in trouble with the hookers, I was like. I felt, I was like so disillusioned, like so hurt. And it even rocked my faith a bit. I wasn't prepared for somebody else's sinning. Does that make sense? All right. This is actually important. This is an important thought because uh, we see this in young people across the board nowadays. Um, There are numbers and numbers of high-profile leaders, pastors, worship leaders that that have been blowing it lately. And the criticism or the response from young people is, is that uh, I'm losing my faith because this leader fell. Does that make sense? Have you heard people say this? If we are discipling ourselves well, if we're, if we're living in the gospel context, somebody else's failure should not affect our personal walk with Jesus Christ. It's not an excuse. You're responsible for your own relationship with Jesus. Somebody else's model and somebody else's failure should have no impact. I mean, I'm not saying that you can't be disappointed, but you can't say, well, if so-and-so fell, then what, what hope do I possibly have? Or it's just all false and it's just all fake. All right, so I want to encourage you. You need to be in season and out of season. You need to be ready for a blessing. You need to be ready for a failure. Yeah? All right. Next one is uh, you, need to, you need some inspection. I kind of alluded to this earlier, but you need to be mindfully and prepared to invite people into your inner circle so that they can minister to your soul. You need to have a healthy uh, inflection about where you're at, what you're struggling with, honest conversation with God, and then you need to invite somebody that you trust into that conversation to inspect your own life. That one's not fun, but this is what we're here to do. We're here to watch over each other's souls. Look, If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, your spirit is in right standing. But that does not mean that you're an emotional train wreck. Your soul needs to be cared for, and you need others. You need to invite others to to care for your soul, your emotions, your will, your drive, your character. Do you know some liars? This, yeah, that guy's a liar. Do you know, you know some liars? Do you have some liars in your life? Do you know people that believe their own lies? Have you ever have you seen this? Maybe you've done it yourself. Maybe you've believed your own lie. The human condition, the human sinful nature, has this incredible ability to swindle itself. Like you can trick yourself. You can lie to yourself. You can believe your own lie. You can go into a relationship with the false spirit and think that you're okay when you're actually not. 
We've seen it. It happens. So don't, you, need to, you need to have a healthy inspection. You need to invite people into your life so that you don't lie to yourself, that you don't swindle yourself. That was number four. You need to make sure that you have grace-infused relationship, restorative gospel truth. You need to have people in your life that are patient with you. You know, we have to be patient with others. Do you have people in your life, you know that they love you if they're patient with you, if they're willing to sit and listen to you? All right. Number five, we saw this at family camp with our, with our parents protecting kids, is that a gospel-centered community is protective. Like, you got to protect each other. Probably now more than ever, right? Probably now more than ever, we need to have this protective mindset that, okay, so-and-so is in a bad situation. We need to protect them the best we can, you know, without violating their free will. Like they're going off, they're off the rails. How can we protect them? How can we come around them? Uh, with all of the information, with all of this weird stuff that's going on on internet and news, like we need to protect our own minds from the news these days. There is too much news that you can consume. You need to protect what you think about and what you let in. You need to protect your kids at home about what you watch on TV. You need to form a bubble of protection, a hedge of protection around your family and around yourself and around this community too. That's what gospel-centered communities do. They, 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 they see the wolves in sheep's clothing. Sometimes, sometimes, often in a congregation as cool and as healthy as Granite Creek, the enemy of God will send in wolves to stir up trouble, to give us a little false theology, to go to one extreme or another, to gossip, to backbite, to, snark, to be snarky. We have to protect not only our, our, ourselves, we have to protect our kids from what the enemy God wants to do. You're responsible as a part of the body of Christ to be protective of those that you're sitting next to. And then finally, number six is restorative. Restoration is a gospel principle. David had an affair and murdered one of his best generals to do so. Peter denied Christ three times and was scared off by a little girl. Paul was such a self-righteous jerk that God had to knock him off his horse with a beam of light. Jonah was running the other way and needed to be encouraged by a big giant fish to get back on track. In the Bible, in the Scriptures, we see God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. We see them restore people back to where they were over and over and over again. If I was in charge, I would not have restored King David. Like, that dude blew it. He's out. Let's get somebody new. Let's get his son. That Absalom guy seems pretty good. He's, pretty, uh, he's a sweet talker. He's got nice hair. Let's get that guy in. Let's kick David out. Peter? I mean, Peter? Jesus restores Peter. I mean, that one was tough. I don't think I would have restored Peter. I mean, Paul, I don't, I mean, gosh, I don't think I would let somebody that smart into my inner circle. Somebody that wanted to kill me, right? Like, Paul wanted to kill Christians. He was probably responsible for Stephen's death. He was at least there, saying, giving his blessing to it. Why is this important for us? Because you and I, like, we're going to blow it. You're going to blow it. Hopefully, you'll go a week without blowing it. 
your friends in this church, they're going to blow it. Some in big ways, some in little ways, you're going to be disappointed. Did you know that it is Jesus' intention to restore your friends back to the place where they were in leadership? Do you know that God wants to restore you back to where you were with Him? You know, it seems like we have highs and lows when we're walking with the Lord. Like sometimes we're on a spiritual high and then, you know, you, you, your flesh gets in the way, you mess up a little bit. Do you know that God wants to restore you back to your spiritual height? Like He's got a plan for you. He's got a roadmap for you. He wants to restore you. And it's important as believers that we get, that we allow, we allow the people around us to be restored. I, I'll, be, I'll be transparent. Sometimes I struggle with this. Sometimes when people have confessed things to me that are horrible, I think to myself, I'm never going to see you the same way now. I am never going to see you the same way. I'm going to continue to judge you for what you have done. And the only way, the only way I can get beyond that is I have to see people through the lens of Jesus' eyes. He sees them as restored. And, and you need to too. And, and I need to too. You need to, in your process of following in love with Jesus, how do you know that you're in love with Jesus? Well, you know it if you are in love with what Jesus is in love with. And what is Jesus in love with? He's in love with you. He's in love with people. He's in love with the church. And so if you do not love the church, if you don't have compassion for those that are around you, if you are glad that they're getting their due justice and that, you know, that they've blown it and now they need to stay down on a lower level for the rest of your lives, if that's your attitude, that you don't love them the same way that Jesus loves them. So you need to love like Jesus does, and you need to allow people to be restored. Um, these These are models that you don't see in the business world, by the way. If I could get the band to come on up. So those are the six points. We're going to be going through 12 gospel centered principles in the next series as we're finishing, well, as we're starting this. Larry, come on up. And let me wrap it up with this last thought. The gospel is good enough. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is good enough. Never get tired of it. Never get apathetic to that message. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is your lens in which you see everything through. Your life, your community, your relationship with God, your relationship with others. You have to see it through that gospel message. If, in all honesty, you are humbly submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ and the good news of His message, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, the gospel message of grace, the gospel message of the kingdom of God, if you're truly submitted to that, then all of these things will be added unto you. Churches that preach the gospel and they, they preach it and they teach it in spirit and truth, then they don't have to worry about the faith without works is dead thing. If they're captivated by the cross, by the good news, then they will be the hands and feet of Jesus, that they will do the things that He had done, that they will act in ways that reflect His righteousness and His justice and His goodness. When we are submitted to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, when we're submitted to the Word of God, did you know that you will know how to vote? When we're submitted to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, do you know that you will know how and where to go and how to be a light into a dark place? When we're submitted to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, when we're seeking first the kingdom of God and all of these things, all of these things will be added unto you. Do you know what that means? If you're submitted to the gospel message and the kingdom of God, that 
Jesus, the Lord, will be your provider, that you don't have to worry about providing for yourself. You don't have to worry about, like, I'm not saying you can stay home and be lazy. you like, you got to get up and do your job, right? But God is going to continue to provide and open up doors for you. You seek first the kingdom of God. All of these things will be added unto you. That gospel then lens, that gospel centeredness will give you a power and a direction, a conviction that is truly transforming. And I hope that you get it, and I hope that you join us in growing into becoming even a healthier church, a healthier community. This is how Jesus does community or communion with us. I love when we receive communion together, when we receive the elements together. This model of doing it on the stage with a plastic cup and this manufactured, I don't know what this is. Um, This model of doing this is effective and it is powerful. But did you know that Jesus wants to lead you into something more like that, where you're doing communion around your table with your brothers and sisters in Christ? This, this works. But the original model was love feasts, opening up your homes and doing life together, breaking bread and drinking wine and remembering the Lord's day in that context. That's my heart's desire that we move into that. We will continue to do this, but it is his vision and it is his dream to do that with you at home. This is the body of Christ. This is the bread from heaven. This is everything that you need. This is your provision. This meal tastes so good. This bread gives life, and this bread keeps you connected to the body of Christ. Receive and be a part of his body for your provision. The gospel message of grace says that we don't earn it, but it is by the stripes on Christ's back that we have been healed. It is only through the shedding of innocent blood that we have been forgiven. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It is a remembrance, but right now this is a very sacred and holy moment. This is the realest thing that you've done all week. This will wash away all of your sin. This will empower you to be a saint and not a sinner. This will give you new life because this drink is life. And it will sustain you. So always remember to drink this drink for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I've got to have the ushers come to the front. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We ask that you would just continue to pour out your spirit upon your church. We thank you for our church that is celebrating with you right now in the mountains. And we thank you for our brothers and sisters that are worshiping you and other churches in our area. We thank you for the church in Southern California. The church in California that is standing up for righteousness and justice. And we thank you for the believers in this great nation. We thank you. For all of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the whole world that look like, don't look like us, don't act like us, don't think like us, but we have one thing in common, and that is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May we focus on you and what we have in common today. God, I pray you bless this offering. God, we give you our obedience and not a sacrifice today. May we be obedient to you. In your name, amen.
my friends. The gospel is good enough. This is the blessing from Thessalonians that goes along with that. May the Lord sanctify you through and through. May your whole body, may your whole soul and spirit be kept blameless, getting better and better each and every day growing together in Christ as a community until the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is coming close. God bless you guys. Go in the power of the Lord today. Do some thinking about where you're at and plug on into community. Ask the Lord who can, who's going to come into your life that you can share your struggles with. God bless you. Have an incredible week with the Lord.